welcome everyone to part seven of the Nolan Countdown miniseries. On this week's episode, the Countdown gang here will be revisiting Christopher Nolan's first real foray into science fiction with the 2010 sci-fi action thriller Inception. But before we jump dream first into that, with me today, as always, I have my co-host Scott Harvey and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you holding up? Pretty good, uh, Scott. We're in week, you know, who knows what here on Earth, too. Um, and I'm just honestly not even going to say anything about the coronavirus because, as you've been pointing out to us, Scott, our, our predictions or I mean, not really our predictions, but our, our optimistic hopes yeah. at the time of recording the first few episodes of this series have not aged well at all. And so... Um, you know, the, it sounds a little a little humorous, I imagine, to people who are listening to those episodes now that they are being released. So I'm not even going to say, like, who knows when we're going to get out of this thing. It could be uh, in a month. It could be, you know, in a year. Who knows? Um, and, and now I'm going to look dumb in two years when this is still going on. But uh, <laughs> what, what can you do? I've placed my foot firmly in my mouth again. But I'm happy to be here, Scott. Um, and, you know, to talk about another massive gargantuan movie just as we did um last time with the dark knight we're really in quite a phase of nolan's uh, filmography here absolutely jay how are you doing pretty good guys um also going to refrain from putting my foot in my mouth regarding the coronavirus no no predictions no sentiments um we do live in a world with the snyder cut now that's exciting i'm sure you guys will Ugh. rehash that on a full episode of your series no. but we didn't you know, we didn't talk about it uh i spared scott talking about it, even though i wanted to we can talk about it here jay do you want to talk about it no it's okay it uh, doesn't really have anything to do with the the topic at hand just wanted to throw that out there <laughs> that you know we, we live in a world where this is real now yeah scott and i talked a lot about business decisions on the podcast this week and i think we actually missed a really good opportunity to talk about business decisions because i don't think the snyder cut exists without hbo max and streaming and just the rise of streaming in general but scott you're gonna say something well, I mean, this might be a hot take, but I don't think the Snyder Cut exists at all right now. I think that's no, why no, it's, it's going to take yeah. take several months before. Months. I mean, until next next year before yeah. we actually get this thing, because he's actually got to go make it now. What whatever yeah. it is going to be, right? Like we don't we don't even know. Is it going to be a new cut of the movie? Is it going to be like a limited series? I don't know, but. Um, Right now, I think it is foolish to be like, yes, finally, we've, we're going to see the film that we've been clamoring for for five years because it doesn't exist. Like, Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, it, it definitely, I mean, it definitely did not exist before now. And just in terms of, like, physically something that HBO can and Warner Brothers can release, it does not exist currently. It's going to take them, what, a, like, nine to 12 months and $30 million to finish this cut. Like, and apparently, from everything I read, it's going to be a very different film than what Joss Whedon put out because it's something like only 10 to 25% of the footage that Zack Snyder shot before the reshoots that Joss Whedon did actually made it into the final cut. So it's going to be like a very different film than, than what we're seeing I mean, with Joss Whedon, which is, want, I think. yeah, I mean, people want that. I mean, when this film comes out and I, as much as I am a relative fan of Batman versus Superman and a relative fan of getting to see what Zack Snyder's vision was going to be for justice league, like, this movie's gonna come out. It's probably gonna suck, and people are just gonna be like, "Well, it wouldn't have been this bad if they could have, if you could have made this originally." And they're just gonna, it's just gonna be these like what ifisms about um, about the Snyder cut, and this isn't this isn't the real Snyder cut, and it, it'll just go on into eternity. Yeah, you're not wrong. We will move on 
to Inception, starring Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead role with an ensemble supporting cast of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe, Killian Murphy, Dalip Rao, and Marion Cotillard. Inception begins with DiCaprio's Dominic Cobb and Gordon Levitt's Arthur in a failed extraction attempt of a key business secret that their mysterious employers, Coble, want in order to further their business interests. The catch? These extractions take place inside other people's dreams, where they subconsciously hide their deepest, darkest secrets. Cobb and Arthur are specialists at these extractions, and even though they fail in this instance, their target, Watanabe's Mr. Saito, is impressed. After tracking them down in Tokyo, Saito offers Cobb and Arthur an ultimatum. Agree to do a job for him in exchange, and in exchange receive free passage back to the U.S. and to his two children where Cobb has a warrant out for the murder of his ex-wife, played by Cotillard, or face the wrath of Koble on their own. Unable to say no to an offer of exoneration for past crimes he was not directly responsible for, Cobb agrees, and alongside Arthur, begins to build his team to complete Saito's mission, one that is even more daring than extracting a secret from a target's mind, and that is inception, or implanting an idea in a target's mind, something which everyone except Cobb claims is impossible. For Cobb, the heist is do or die, succeed and be reunited with his children, or fail and go to prison for the rest of his life. I have not been shy on this podcast about how, not unlike The Dark Knight last week, Inception is one of my favorite movies of all time, and with that come pretty high expectations. But before we dive in into the material itself, I'd love to hear what both of your expectations were coming into this rewatch. Jay, let's start with you first. You know, I was a little bit nervous, believe it or not, uh, only because I would, you know, remember how long this movie was, and it probably this was probably. On in terms of the movies I hadn't seen in the longest uh, on this countdown, this was definitely up there. Um, and I remember the first half being very expo- expositional, and you know, just thinking, you know, this this might drag on for a bit. So uh, that's at least how I felt, you know, going into the watch. Okay, so you liked it a lot, but you were a little bit anxious because you weren't sure how it was going to hold up. Scott, what do you think? What were your yeah? I mean, when I was watching this the other night, I made a Facebook post about, hey, I'm watching this. Um, this, you know, what are some of your most memorable theater experiences? Because I'm missing theaters when watching this. And I, I mean, that's because watching Inception was one of my most memorable theater experiences. Not the first time, right? Because I think that um, everyone, I think that I was in the same place as everyone after watching this the first time. Like, I don't know what I just saw, but I really liked it. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. But the second time I went to see it in IMAX with um, a couple of our friends from high school, Scott, and experiencing an, an IMAX and also watching my friend uh, who had not seen it yet watch it for the yeah. first time and like a mi- an hour in him like turning to us and being like, this is awesome, um, was was definitely part of a great theater experience for me. And yeah, I, it had been a while for me too. Uh, since I watched it, even though I own the movie on Blu-ray, but um, it had been a few years, probably to be to be honest. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I expected to to find a, a few flaws because there's, you know, it's hard to make a movie this um, gargantuan without, um, you know, without having some flaws. And there are some, and we'll talk about it. But um, yeah, you know, was obviously expecting to really enjoy the movie on the whole. Yeah, not to not to be obtuse, but like this is a film the size of something like Avengers Endgame, right? Like it's a film that's like there's so much going on. There's so much imagination put into it that 
it's I think it's like really hard to deliver a tight story. And I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but like it probably isn't that tight of a story in the grand scheme of things. But before we get to talking about that, guys, I'd love to hear with those expectations in mind. What were your impressions of the rewatch on the whole? Jay, let's go to you. I I think I was right to worry about all the exposition, you know, in in the first hour. I mean, it, it was as I was sitting there watching it, it was the kind of thing that was like, yeah, I, I definitely couldn't rewatch this movie like, you know, several times in the next several months, let's say, like or like once a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um that second half of that movie, man, it uh it really lived up and you know really reminded me why. You know, one of the reasons I was excited to do this Nolan countdown. I mean, the film, you know, holds up. The visuals are stunning. The score and the music are great. Um, you know, I uh, I really thought the second the second half, you know, reminded me of why I love this movie so much. Scott, what about you? Yeah, this is a really good movie. I mean, there there's there's no way around it. I think that um, just the the originality of it really just trump trumps everything. The fact, like, it, it's hard to you know explain why this film works so well because on paper, it, it seems like it should just collapse under its own weight, right? With uh, under the weight of its its lofty ideas and how complicated and convoluted the storytelling can be, and the fact that it, you know, like Nolan's other films, there's not much humor to be had here. There's there's maybe a couple moments, but uh, he he humor is not something that Nolan brings to his films. Um, and so, making like this type of movie and making it a summer blockbuster. Like I read about this in, in Letterboxd, but this feels like the movie, the type of movie that people would watch and like not really get it at first. And then maybe a few years down the line, there would be like a reevaluation and be like, oh, actually, this movie was really amazing. Like, and we just kind of didn't get it at the time because it was it was just a lot to take in. But somehow, like some way, right, he this thing was like a classic from the beginning. Um, and, you know, people were freaking out about this movie from the minute it was released into theaters. Um, and I think that's mainly because like, we just don't get movies like this back then or nowadays where it's, you know, a, a giant, again, Avengers sized movie, but it's not based on any existing property. It's not uh, familiar to anyone who is watching the movie. It is distinctly original and contains, you know, weird science fiction concepts that, um, you know, screenwriters and, and directors and stuff haven't really dreamed up before uh, and, you know, channels them into this sort of familiar heist movie blockbuster package. And somehow it all works, e- even despite all, of, again, all of the things that on paper that seem like it should be holding it, holding it back. Um, and like I said, you know, there are flaws to the movie. I, I think that the characterization is not as strong in some for for some um, characters as it was in The Dark Knight across the board. Um, I think that there's, you know, some some logic stuff. And again, like Nolan, I think one of the flaws we're picking up on maybe in some of the movies, or at least I am, is that he often uh, there's often a deliberateness to the way that he. Uh, you know, constructs these elaborate plots. You can almost sort of see the the puppet master a little bit at, at certain parts. I think in in the films, and um, I, I think that that's probably true here in Inception as well. Um, but still, it's 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 an amazing movie. It's amazing. It's it's amazing that this movie exists, um, and I'm glad that it does exist and that people you know actually appreciate this thing for what it was. I, when I was watching this, I was thinking about like. Denny Villeneuve and like some of his recent movies, I think, which are 
going for similar things, but like just haven't reached the, the type of commercial success as Nolan has. And, you know, that's a shame because I think like Arrival and Blade Runner, I mean, are, are just every bit as good as this is. Um, but, you know, it's, so, so, I mean, I bring that up to say, I don't know if we'll, when we'll see a movie like this again or a director like this again, who, you know, like Christopher Nolan, who can create something like this and reach and connect with as many people as he did with this movie. Yeah, I mean, Chris Nolan is just at this point in his career. I mean, look, we're like pretty late in his filmography as of right now. I mean, this is film number seven of, of 10 that he's made so far. 10 will be a number 11. And he's at a point where he is now somehow, some way, Warner Brothers trusts him with $160 million or whatever this movie costs to make and uh, probably double that in marketing budget. And they trust him with something that is just so far out there like yes it's a it is on some level an accessible action heist movie it has very bankable stars in leonardo dicaprio i guess joseph gordon levitt is a little bit less so at the time but dicaprio for sure is a, is a bankable star but they trust him to make a movie that not just makes them their money back but is you know nets a huge profit for them this movie made 830 million dollars at the worldwide box office and like you said scott this movie is completely original. It is like purely and solely from the mind of Christopher Nolan. Like he's the only per like only person credited with writing and story on this film. It's his vision on in the director's chair. And there is no other director full stop who gets this kind of budget from any studio to make this kind of film. Like not Tarantino, not Wes Anderson. Denny Villeneuve even doesn't get this budget. And he's mostly working with IPs that already exist. I mean, Arrival's the exception to that movie costs a third of what this movie cost to make. I mean, yeah. Arrival was based off of a short story. I mean, he, he took a lot sure. of liberties with it, but yeah, yeah, not, not a recognizable IP though, I guess is more, mm -hmm. is more what I meant. And, but that, that, that's a fair point. It's not an original story. And so it's just, it's just wild. I think, I think it's really tough to appreciate that. I agree with these guys. Like this is a once like more than like once in a generation, but like Chris Nolan is the type of director, forget his talent, like whether you think he's talented or not, but like the money that someone actually trusts him with to make, make films like this is a once in a generation, once in a century, you know, once in multiple lifetimes type of type of situation where you get a director who has this sort of vision and also gets this sort of trust from, a, from a studio. And, and what you get is something like this, that yeah, it definitely has a few flaws. I don't mind the exposition so much and, and I'll get into why that is later on in the film. And it's just incredible. Like the craft of the film is wonderful. I mean, Wally Pfister finally gets an Oscar nomination or an Oscar win. Sorry, he got several nominations, but this, he finally gets his Oscar win for cinematography in this. I think that Hans Zimmer's score, I'm sure we'll get into it here in a second. I think that's amazing. Just the whole sound design of this film. It's not as loud as I remember is something that, we can jump into it for some reason. I don't know if it's just because of the theater, like the theater versus watching it at home. Like you can adjust your volume and it changes the experience. Maybe I don't know, but it's not as loud as I remember it being in theaters. And like you guys, I hadn't seen this film in a while. I think this is probably up there with like interstellar with one of the movies that I haven't seen in the longest time, obviously with the exception of being the ones that I hadn't seen before. But it, overall, this movie a hundred percent lived up. And it, it, honestly, I'm watching, you're watching like the first 20, I mean, I should, I'm watching the first 20 minutes of this film. I'm like, did Leonardo Dica DiCaprio like miss his chance to be an action star? Like where, like, where was this? Like, he's like diving across tables and, and like these like Japanese buildings with like guns and like shooting at people. I'm like, why is, why is he not getting, getting more action films? 
was it him though? Do we do we know it was him? Did he pull a Tom Cruise and was that actually him d- diving across the tables? But I I take your point. I it's just, po- I mean, it, look, it's possible. It's yeah. possible that it's not, but I think that he has the like whether he's doing the stunts or not. Maybe that's ultimately the reason why he's not an action star. I don't know. Uh, but if it's not him, it invalidates my point for sure. It was, but it was Cliff Booth, obviously. It was yeah. Brad Pitt. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> send it. I'm I'm here for a Brad Pitt movie any day any day of the week. But uh, no, I think that this is this is just incredible stuff. I I love DiCaprio's performance. I think it's it's one of my favorite uh, and so, like so, like look like I guess kind of under the radar favorite performances from DiCaprio. Not just because of the film that it is, but I think he's spectacular. Like I think he's really genuinely spectacular in this film. Like the like the arc that he goes through over the course of this movie is as much as I think that they're Scott to your point here. I think some of the characterization is a little bit lacking in some of that ensemble cast. I think that like all of the attention is on Cobb is on DiCaprio in this film. And I think you do get the return on the investment for that. Cause ultimately I think the more that you watch, the more that I have watched this movie, the more that I think that this movie more than anything else, more than about like reality versus dreams and what matters like this movie is about this character and like his emotional arc of getting over the death of his wife. Like that is what this film is, is about at its core. And it's just wrapped in this like really awesome in like awe inspiring, like sci-fi action heist film at the same time. And I think that's really cool. And I think that the more you revisit that is uh, the more it becomes clear that this is, this is honestly also a, a really a, an emotional drama for this character who's trying to overcome the guilt that's associated with the death of his wife. And I think that's just really awesome that you can, that Nolan is able to do all of these things, make a movie that can make $830 million at the box office and tell a story about a guy who can't get over the fact that his, he might be in at least indirectly responsible for the death of his wife. So with that, love to jump into the technical aspects. Uh, I think we've been teasing for a couple weeks that we might have some sort of like fight on the podcast about <laughs> the score of Inception. So Scott, lay out your case for why the Inception score is not as good as some of the others. I'm not, I'm not going to yes. put words in your mouth. I'm not yeah. going to put words in your mouth, but not as good as some of the other scores here. Yeah, I don't think we're going to have a fight because I don't have some out of left field take. It, it is just not as good as the others. And I think it's because, you know, exactly what I talked about last week with The Dark Knight. Zimmer shows some restraint in that movie, and I think it's really effective. Here, he, I mean, at least not not in the the last you know third of this movie. There there is no restraint. You know, from the minute they get to layer three, right to the to this mountain to the avalanche, like it is just nonstop. Burr, burr. And that's the thing. Like it could be effective, and like at the end, right at the very end, I, I like, I think it's perfect. Like, I think that's, that is the moment that calls for it. Just like in the dark night, right at the end, that's when things really, you know, kick, kick up a notch, but because it's just so like ever present throughout that, um, that final, um, you know, third of the movie, that, that last section where they're going in to layer three, um, it's, it's just like, you get exhausted by the time that you actually get to the part where, yeah, maybe this is where he should be employing it. And like, you just don't need it at certain parts. Like, like we talked about in the, the car chase sequence in the dark night, like you don't need the music because the action conveys the mood uh, of the scene with, without, uh, without the music being necessary. Like you, you know, it's, you know, it's um, intense. Like it's almost more immersive without the music because you're, you know, you're hearing the, the noise of the the trucks going by and everything, and like I think that I mean you're talk you're talking about like we have 
on on one level we have like the i can't remember what his name is but he's driving off of the bridge in layer number one and then we have layer number two where joseph gordon levitt is trying to do all of this stuff in the elevator at zero gravity and then you have layer three where there's an avalanche happening like there's so much happening we don't need music being like isn't this intense isn't this awesome isn't this amazing like yes it is like we we know it is we can see that with our eyes um and so i think that Hans Zimmer, I mean, he's an amazing composer. He's one of the best to ever do it. Um, but I think he just maybe got a little excited about the, the possibility and the potential of this movie and, um, you know, it's a chance to have another iconic score and, and maybe took that a step too far in this last part of the movie. So that's all I have to say, I guess. Yeah. Yusuf is the name of the guy you're talking about. Yes. Jay, yeah. what do you think? Yeah. So, yeah, Scott, I don't agree with that. I think that. And, and I don't know, maybe this is me just, you know, with my Hans Zimmer bias or whatever. But to me, like the score, especially when we get down to layer three, really serves to just add to like the discombobulation, like the chaos of like being, you know, in a dream within a dream within a dream. And I, I get that, you know, to some extent that is kind of trying to drive the point past home and, you know, very much being like, you know, burr, burr, like this is intense. Sure. But I don't know. I, I guess to me, it, it just works. And I don't know. I, I think he does take his foot off the gas a little bit. Like there's that moment where uh, Fisher's been shot in layer three and they're like, so that's it then we lost. And like, it, it just goes completely quiet. And then when we're uh, in limbo later on and uh, Cobb is talking to Maul again, you know, like he gets quiet before it, you know, starts to get crazy as the dream layer starts to fall apart and whatnot. But I, I guess like all in all, to me, it's, it still works. You know, it, it, it's, it's loud, it's chaotic, but I think it appropriately matches everything that's going on. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it is a it's a loud movie in general, but I guess I really tried to take notice of you know, okay, what is the sound like mixing and editing elements of the film, and well, I guess sound mixing elements of the film, and what are what's the score, right? Because like those are the two components of the sound in the film. You know, what sounds are they are they generating and and layering on that's supposed to be part of the world, part of the environment. And then what's the score they're adding on top of it? And again, I think that it, it probably actually does make a big difference here. Like in terms of when you're talking about like watching this film in the theater and watching it at home, like, I mean, for the, for people who are like more dedicated listeners to the podcast, you'll know that like one of my biggest problems with, with uh, birds of prey earlier this year was that it just felt like a total assault on the senses when I watched it in the theater, it was just so loud, like so over the top. And part of me wonders that if I watch that, like if I later tonight, if I watch that film on my TV at home, if I'd like that movie significantly more because I can turn the volume down. Like, I really wonder that. And I wonder if Inception might benefit, you know, on a, on a rewatch by being able to turn that down. I don't know. I can't go back and watch that in the theater, at least not until they reopen movies and show like every Christopher Nolan movie and lead up to Tenet whenever that releases. Maybe they'll do that. I don't know. But uh, I think that, that if that is the case, I remembered it being a very loud movie and it is a loud movie, but it's not as loud as I remembered it being. And I, I think I'm more in your camp, Jay. I think that this score, as you get deeper into the dream state, as you as you get more into that, like the like the assault on the senses that is happening with both the sound and the score. I think neither of them separate are over the top. But when you put them together, I think it it does create this feeling of a little bit more of a you know discombobulated. Lots of like like you said, it's got lots of stuff is stuff is happening. There's an avalanche. You're driving off a bridge. You're like like blowing shit up in an elevator shaft. Like you have lots of stuff happening, but but there's also this score to go along with it. And and I think it works. Like for me, it, it just works. I don't know if I can explain it more than that. But to me, the score of what, what you get, you know, on like on the soundtrack with the score and what you get in the film when you mix it all together, 
uh, and edit it all together. I think I think that what you get is something that's really effective for me, and I think it, it enhances the high points. So the whole point of the movie is that everything feels like it's like building and building and building and and, and going further and further. And I think the score complements that in in the way that it builds with the action that's actually taking place. But I mean, I don't think that it's building. I think that's that's my point is that it's just once you get to this point, it's just all crescendos for 45 minutes of the movie. And I don't know. I just don't. I well, don't crescendo feel like, is by definition building like it's built. It's building. It's a continuing to crescendo all the way through. But I mean, I, it, I is the, it is the zenith. I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for then. But it is sure. it is not like increasing at all. Like this is this is the top of the mountain. No pun intended. And we're just going to sit there for the next 45 minutes. I mean, that that's that's my personal opinion. I just don't think that it conveys the discombobulation maybe in the way that um, that y'all are suggesting just because it's not like the music itself isn't really like disorienting. It's just repetitive honking. <laughs> It's not uncut gems. That was some disorienting. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, but no, to, I, th I think to I mean I don't I don't think we need to go back and forth forever on this, but I, I do think that it does continue to build personally. I think there are motifs that it, that it revisits, and it definitely like I mean what, what everyone remembers about Inception, whether you've seen this last year, whether you saw this a decade ago, is like the the bomb bomb that like the that recurring motif. I think that that happens, but I think that rather than that motif, I think what what you get in between, like when you get those points, I think that's what's building. Right. And if, if all if you, all you walk away with, which is totally valid, if you do it, like all you walk away with this film is just remembering those motifs, then I can I can get that that perspective on on the score of the film. But I guess for me, whether it's I mean, look, like I, I don't know what it is, but it, the, everything else with the score does work for me and everything else that's in between those motifs and, and the motifs work for me, too. Like, let's be clear, I'm not I'm not trying to to back down on this. Like I, that works for me, too. But I understand what that perspective, if that is what you walk. I away mean, with. that's. That's why I highlighted that one section, because I think it does work for the most part, yeah. you know, in, in the rest of the movie. I just think that there's a reason that that one part has become memed, because I think it is just a little much, but we can move on. Yeah, I think the other technical parts, because we just spend a lot of talk, a lot of time talking about the sound. And it did win two Sound Academy Awards. It won Sound Editing and Sound Mixing. May those two awards rest in peace. We'll finally get Best Sound starting next year. It won Best Visual Effects, which, I mean, 1917 level of visual effects here. Uh, for for me, guys, this is really amazing visual effects wise. And then Wally Fister, you know, justice is finally done. Maybe Wally Fister gets his Academy Award. I think this is also it happens to be his best cinematography uh, of the ones that he did. I've been pretty open about on the podcast, not really understanding why he's getting nominated consistently for cinematography, even though I love a lot of these films. But this one, I feel like I feel like you really get it in this film. It's like it's some of the some of the shots that you get in this film, even though they're not you know, long shots, which are sometimes the more showy type of cinematography that you might get nominated for. I think it's really, really effective. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, uh, the production design is really good as well. Um, just like the design of the hotel, the design of the yeah. mountain fortress at the end of the movie, like I, I, all of that, I think, uh, worked really well for me and like just further accented this, dream dream landscape i guess i don't know a, a better way yeah. to say it than that but um i don't think that the movie and the different layers work as well if not for you know the the very distinct production design at each level um sort of you know establishing where we are yeah. um so that the audience doesn't get lost because obviously it is easy to get lost in a movie like this yeah, it's very unique and different. It's a shame that it didn't actually win the Academy Award for that. It did get nominated for its art direction at the time. They've changed that name of that award to production design since then. But uh, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think that we have a lot to thank for Ellen Page there. Great work. Great work. Great work as the architect 
in in the group to get all that done. Uh, no, I joke. If but you say uh, so. <laughs> no, she no. But I think that I agree. the The art direction, the design is really important because you're getting shades of of Dunkirk. Not to fast forward through our series a little bit here, but like some of the stuff you get here when the, when they're in three different, I mean, four different sections by the end, right? Four different dream dream worlds by the end. I mean, that's very Dunkirk in terms of time passing at different speeds, you know, through the film and and having to reconcile the different moments and, and coming together and trying to orient yourself around how much time is left in which place. I think it's more challenging in Dunkirk to do that. I think he definitely explored that further, but you can, you can see the threads of, of something that he'll pull on later on in his filmography, which again, I always just think is so cool when, you know, you go through a director's filmography and you see things like that. Jay, what do you think? I think you guys said it, um, you know, especially, you know, again, like you said, you know, the different dream layers being so distinctive really works well, but to even, you know, step outside of that, I think my favorite, like shot in the movie is when uh, Leo's running through Mombasa and it kind of, uh, as, as the chasing begins, the camera kind of goes up and shows you the city and it looks like a maze. And it, it, it's not at the point of like, you know, hammering the the, the maze motif like too hard, right? But it, it you know, it, it shows you that. And, you know, little things like that impress me, I guess, for lack of a better word. And, you know, remind me why I like this movie so much. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing, Jay. Like, is it is it impressing upon you the larger motif of mazes and puzzles? Or is it telling you that, He's in a dream. Right. I mean, you know, there are moments where just to briefly talk about the writing, I guess, you know, it feels like they're trying to hit that a little bit too hard. Like when they're uh, uh, in Yusuf's, like in the back of like Yusuf's lab or whatever, where those people are sharing a dream. And then that elderly man, you know, walks up to Leo and says, you know, the dream has become their reality. Who are you to say otherwise? Um, you know, it, it felt like it was trying a little too hard. Uh, you know, in moments like that, but then, you know, moments where like visually it shows it to you, like, you know, when you see Mombasa, it's kind of a maze, like to me, like those moments work better in trying to like, you know, push either confusion about whether or not this is real or not, but then also, you know, greater ideas of like, what is a dream? What is real, et cetera. Yeah. I think that quote, I, I want to come back to that because I, unlike you, I think that's actually one of the most important quotes in the movie. And it's really important that they actually explicitly state it because I think it directly ties to the end of the movie. And one of the things that I've kind of, my per my perspectives on the film has evolved so much over time as and we can talk we'll talk about this at the end don't worry but like the idea of like is this movie about whether or not the top stops spinning or is it about something else um and i i'll we'll circle back around to that but i think that quote's really important for for that question uh and moving moving on on that note and and to start talking about some of these characters we've briefly alluded to some of our high level thoughts on where we thought characterizations and performances might have lied uh earlier on guys but scott let's start with you first Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't believe uh, he was nominated for this. Uh, he, he he was definitely still during the phase of his life where the Oscar was very elusive for him. He didn't get it until The Revenant in 2016. But what did you think of Leo's performance? What did you think of this character of, of Cobb? Uh, you mentioned that you think that some of the characterizations in this film were a bit weaker than some of the other Nolan films, maybe particularly The Dark Knight, but would love to hear your thoughts more specifically on Dominic Cobb. Yeah, I mean, it's that comment definitely doesn't refer to this character because yeah. I think he is very drawn very strongly. I mean, you know, I said this past year, I think that uh, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is DiCaprio's best performance, but this is right up there. I, I agree with your thoughts, Scott, that this is a, a really, really strong performance from him and restrained, but also he he gives it that extra, you know, level when he needs to like in those flashback scenes with with mal and him and you know the whole circumstances leading up to her suicide and everything i think that those moments really work because he is so buttoned up restrained like professional 
throughout most of the movie that when, you know, we really see him emote, you know, after, after the death occurs, it's effective. Right. And, and we, we understand why, I mean, it makes sense to us that he is losing his grip on reality, that malice constantly showing up that she is, you know, constantly haunting him because I mean, we see the way that it affected him in the moment and it's, you know, the highest point of emotion for him in the entire movie. So obviously it's something and someone that means a lot to him. Um, and so I think he he hits the right notes at, at every uh, point in this movie. And um, yeah, I think that, I, I mean, I, I wrote about this on Letterboxd, but like his character's journey in particular feels very reminiscent of Memento in a way, right? And, and that was the, the film that kept coming to mind for me in the way that, right, here's someone, first of all, who was dealing with the loss of a spouse. Second of all, is sort of deluding themselves, you know, about what reality is. And third of all, is maybe doing that because they are trying to put behind them any responsibility or guilt that they may have had in the death of their spouse. I think there's a lot of similarities here between um, what Cobb is going through and what uh, Leonard is going through in Memento. And I think that they're both, they're done effectively in both movies. And yeah, a great performances by the actors, by the respective actors in both movies. So I, I'm a big fan of DiCaprio's work here. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I Obviously very different manifestations of, of maybe similar themes sure. about what, what you're dealing with, but no, I think that's a very interesting point. Jay, what did you think about that point? And do you have any other, you know, separate thoughts from that maybe about what you thought of DiCaprio and, and again, just this character of Cobb in general, if you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, weirdly, the the parallels between this and Memento hadn't occurred to me until you just mentioned them. Um, so thanks for that. I actually was thinking more back to following just to think back to, you know, our early discussions about a, you know, mysterious character named Cobb and, you know, how there are different timelines playing out. Um, and, you know, there was that tease at the end of following about what is, you know, what if things were perhaps real or not. I mean, it might not have been a tease, right? We might have been reading into that. But, you know, that, that's essentially what came back to me. This felt like, you know, Nolan kind of in some ways coming back to his roots, you know, give this character with the same name and, a, you know, similar, you know, at least in tone type backstory uh, to a character. And, yeah, yeah I, I think they're Leonardo both thieves. DiCaprio, they're both thieves. thieves. Like they ultimately yeah, right? are both thieves. Yeah. And I, th I think Leo brings it. Um, you know, I think it's probably one of my top two favorite performances of his, not having seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so can't speak to that one, but I'll get around to it, I'm sure. But Man, I would have given you my one? digital code. I just gave it away to my friend, but I wouldn't uh, give it to you if I know. Next What's time? the other one? Wolf of Wall Street. Hmm. But in any case, um, yeah, I, I think he brings it, you know, with, with just the right amount. You know, I don't think it's too over the top, you know, you feel the sense of desperation. It doesn't feel corny, despite the fact that, you know, this is again, like kind of a made up universe. Like I, I know it certainly wasn't written to be like that, but I, I feel like you almost run the risk of things like sounding too over the top, but I, I certainly didn't get that feeling uh, watching him. Yeah. Again, long time listeners of the podcast will know that Leonardo DiCaprio is my favorite actor. And I had forgotten, like I kind of was saying earlier, how just amazing this performance is. I think that, it's hard for me to say what like what DiCaprio's best performance is. I don't really think it's The Revenant, even though that is the one he won the Oscar for. But he's just awesome in, in so many things that he does. And to think about all the other films that he does, like he, he hasn't done another film like Inception since. And he hasn't done, I mean, he hasn't done that many films since Inception, to be honest. But And he didn't really do anything like Inception before either. I think maybe like the closest thing was like Catch Me If You Can, maybe. Like it, it's just 
he's such a diverse actor. Like Wolf of Wall Street is just vastly different than than this role. Obviously, I think there's so many things to like about the the dynamic nature of of DiCaprio as an actor, and I think that you get that dynamic range in the performance. Like Scott, I I really. I really hear what you're saying about the whole notion that he's really kind of a restrained, very almost low key kind of um, character and gives a low key sort of performance until those really, you know, peak emotional moments that you get in the film, usually when they're he's interacting with Maul. Um, I mean, th- those are the high points, right? Because he is this otherwise just like very buttoned up professional person. He is a thief. He is really good at his job and he does his job really well. And he's all business when it comes down to those things. Um, but when it comes to his personal life, he he has to fight a lot of demons. And I think that you really feel, not just see, but you feel those demons in him and you feel those emotional moments that he hits. And so, you know, when you when you go through the film and you get these, you know, sort of mentorship interactions with people like Ariadne and you get these sort of like buddy, you know, conversations between him and Arthur or him and Eames or even him and Yusuf, I think that you, you get a lot of the, like a lot of range there. And then uh, obviously when you get to his interaction with him and Maul, it, it feels like it's almost a completely different performance, but in a good way, right? Like he's showing that he has very different relationships with these people. And he's a very different person around these, around these people who he's had different experiences with and who he plays different roles for. And maybe there's nothing sexy or glamorous about doing that. I think, you know, there's also the action elements, which are maybe maybe at, inject a little bit of even more flavor and in, into the role. Again, <laughs> Scott, to your point, if it is him doing those stunts, I don't know. But he uh, yeah, I think that there's just so much range in this performance and this character of Cobb, like I was mentioning, like it is the it is the lifeblood of the movie. If, if you're not vibing with this character and, and locked in on the journey this character is going through. Yes, there's still the action heist elements of the film. So, like I said, it's still accessible, but you're not going to probably be that interested in really thinking about this film after it's over. If you're not invested in Cobb's journey, because ultimately again, the more times I revisit this film and I've probably seen it. I mean, I mean, you guys maybe have even seen it more than I have. I've only seen it probably like five or six times, but every time I watch this, watch this movie, I feel like I key in more and more on this journey and this emotional journey that he's going through again to overcome his past and, you know, his decades and decades and decades of time that he spent in limbo with Maul and the lifetime that he lived with her and, and the ultimate consequence of all of that and his actions there. But, you know, but also overcoming this whole notion that, you know, he is, people think that he's never going to return to his family. Like the fact that is that his like mother or mother-in-law is telling his, his children that he's never coming back, things like that. And, and the things that he has to overcome. And ultimately the question he has to ask himself is, does he care anymore whether he's in a dream or whether he's in reality? And what that even means. So tying back into the, the line that Jay mentioned earlier, I think the, that that is that is a question, and that is a notion that that he is constantly having to wrestle with, whether explicitly or implicitly. That's something that he constantly has to have um, an answer for. And I think that answer changes over the course of the film. I think what's important to him changes. I mean, in the whole train metaphor too is what kind of what you're talking about. Of uh, does it really matter where you're going or where you are if you're together like if you're with the people that you want to be with i mean that's kind of what what cobb is struggling with i mean it you know 
for, for some part of the movie that is his wife. And then ultimately it becomes, I think his children, you know, towards the end of the movie, as he's forced to, you know, accept and put, put Mal behind him. But yeah. that's sort of what that whole re repetitive part about metaphor about the train is, is getting at as well. I think. Yeah, absolutely. But with that moving on, you know, I've kind of tried to group in some of the supporting cast and into different, uh, I don't know, buckets. Of, and I think one of those buckets is his team. Right. So you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays Arthur. You have Ellen Page, who plays Ariadne. You have Tom Hardy, who plays Eames. You have Dalip Rao, who plays Yusuf. I think that covers all of them. But th that's kind of what I view as the sort of core team, you know, for the heist supporting cast guys. It, who of that group kind of sticks out uh, to you guys? I, I know there's one that comes to mind for me, but I'd love to hear from you first, Jay. Who, who sticks out for you? It's Tom Hardy's Eames, uh, without question. He... Um... You know, his, I guess the comedy lands with me really well. You know, some of his like lines, I like still quote, uh, you know, just in like daily life, you know, you, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling, is like probably one of my favorite, uh, I shouldn't say one of my favorite lines in the movie, but certainly one of the funnier moments. Um, yeah. To me, just the way, you know, yeah. And, you know, yeah. the way he just, uh, you know, is constantly busting uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Arthur, you know, it, uh, it, it works for me. You know, you get the sense that, you know, he's, he's highly skilled, highly I guess accomplished and that, you know, he's certainly like known for what he does, but at the same time, you know, it's just kind of a goofball and, you know, doesn't like Arthur, uh, a real stick in the mud type. Yeah. Scott, anyone stick out for you? I agree. I think Tom Hardy is the standout here. I think that he brings to Jay's point, the, you know, sort of droll sly. I mean, I wouldn't say humor necessarily because again, Nolan very much not a, not a, a hum humorous guy, but um, I think that he has a little twinkle in his eye, right? That is different from you that than you usually see in um, Nolan movies to, to that to that very point. Um, and so he just feels like something a little different, especially from the rest of the team members who are all just so straight laced and you know emotionless and just focused on the task um, at hand. And I, I think that he is a nice um, you know complement to that because he he is a little bit different. I think. Ellen Page stands out, but not for the right reasons. Again, not not because it's her fault, but again, because I think Nolan gives you know female characters short shrift here, and I'm not sure if, if this is the right place to to discuss her character's role in the movie. But uh, once again, I found it to be very perfunctory, pr probably in in a worse way than than Batman Begins or The Dark Knight was. Than yeah, Rachel was. I, I mean. I'm reserving some time when we talk about the plot to talk about her. Right. So we'll save it for then because I have some thoughts as well. But yeah, I mean, look, Tom Hardy, guys, now he's like obviously a super, super famous actor. He's, I mean, two years after this and movie we're going to talk about next week, he had a huge role, right? He played Bane in, in Dark Knight Rises. And, you know, he he did what, like uh, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road, like one of my favorite movies, another one of my favorite movies of all time uh, that he's in. He did. Things like, uh, yeah, he was one of the main roles in Dunkirk, too, I guess. You know, Venom last year. Or not last year, two years ago now. But he's like, he did what? That's a huge role for him. Don't make that face. It's huge. It is huge. I just meant the, the that, quality. That movie of made more money than Inception, Scott. So don't no, no, frown I'm not, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the quality <laughs> of movies that you were mentioning took a steep downturn when you got to. <laughs> you Venom, haven't even but... seen it. You haven't even seen it. I mean, I agree. I with you, know Scott, it's you not good. It. I know it's not good. <laughs> Jay loved that film. 
justice for Venom for Jay. Um, I keep bringing this up, I swear. <laughs> it's honestly their best recurring gag, honestly, at this point. Um, yeah, but he also did things like Peaky Blinders. Like he's he's obviously taken off since then, but Tom Hardy was a relative unknown, I think, at the time that Inception was made. And yeah. I think this is one of the movies that that really made him for his career. I mean, yes, you could say Dark Knight Rises probably did more for his career than Inception did, but if Dark, if, if Inception was the, was the film that got him on Christopher Nolan's radar for The Dark Knight Rises, then maybe this is the one that that gets the most uh, most most credit in my book because I love this character. I think Eames is great, and Scott, I, I take your point around that there not being much comic relief in the film, but this character feels different than a lot of the other characters because. I think Wikipedia describes him as a sharp-tongued associate of Cobb. And I think that's a good way to put it. He feels like something out of an Aaron Sorkin film, honestly. He, feel, he feels like a character who always has a really sharp, witty response that you don't really expect to see, I think, in, in, in real life. You don't expect someone to have that sort of, you know, have his wits about him that much to have the perfect response to a lot of, a lot of jabs because he's got a lot of jabs for Arthur. He's got jabs for just about everyone. And I think he's a real perfect fit because he also is – a consummate professional as well so you can understand why Cobb trusts him uh to do to do it is to do what it is that he's doing and uh some sort of like Aaron Sorkin cross mission impossible uh combination here is he's kind of again he's some sort of like I don't know impersonator in in, in the stream world he puts on um I guess a, a, a dream mask I don't even know how you describe it uh basically because he's know, it's all a cognition whatever uh anyway so I think overall really good performance I I you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, is good. It's it's a bit of... I, the characterization here is a little bit lacking. It's a little bit of a blank character. But something about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, just really works for that character. I think it works really well. Uh, I'm just su also surprised that Leap Rao hasn't been in more things. Yes, not much not much to do here, but I would have thought this film would have put him more on, on the map overall. And Ellen Page, uh, like this role's not as big for her as Juno was. So maybe we can leave it at that. But moving, moving on for that, I think one of the other main categories, and we can break this out into two if you guys would like, would just be like other significant members of the cast uh you have marion cotillard who plays maul who we've talked about a little bit but you also have uh killian murphy who plays uh is it robert fisher who's the target for this inception job and you also have ken watanabe who plays mr saito uh, guys i think maul probably maybe even warrants her own her own conversation here maybe but of those three is there anyone you'd like to talk about yeah, I actually think the. I mean, I'm going to criticize the female character later, Mariani, but I actually think that Marianne Cotillard does a nice job here as this character of Maul. I think she very effectively walks a fine line between like hero and villain. I mean, that's 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 an oversimplified way to put it, but um, you know, we, we don't know exactly how to feel about this character because. Obviously, she is threatening their, um, you know, their ability to complete the job, to to complete the inception. But at the same time, like she is a piece of Cobb that he just can't put behind him. And you know, she 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 died, and um, she's you know showing up not not because of her own fault, right? But because Cobb really just can't get past it, and and therefore she is sort of forced into this role as playing the foil. And so I think she does a nice job of she has like a nice air of mystery about her performance i guess is is how i would would describe it to where you're not sure um you know how much agency she really has in her actions or if this is again if this is all Cobb's projection um 
of her and that, you know, the, the real mall was, you know, much more like what we see in the brief flashbacks of when they were married. So I think she does a, a nice job in that it is one of the better female characters probably in a Nolan film, even though of course she dies. Well, she was always dead, but go ahead. But yeah, that's my point. She, died. she is, she is dead. <laughs> yeah. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I won't say too much about her, only because I don't know what it is about uh, Marion Cotillard, but I I don't think I've liked her in a role to this day. Even if I thought she's done like a good job, uh, I, I didn't like her in this movie. I didn't like her in the next movie we're going to review in the countdown. Um, I, I, and I can't pinpoint it, so I, I really won't harp on it too much because it just feels unfair. Um, but, you know, something about her performances just doesn't quite, you know, bring it all the way home for me. But I, again, I think you know, in uh, this one, you know, it's certainly one of her better ones. And I, I think she does, you know, I guess, bring it and like do what is necessary for the plot. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could disagree more, Jay. I think Mary Cotillard is great in this film. I think that this is a really strong role. And you must just hate French people. There you go. Wow, well, y'all finally All disagreed right. on something. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have nothing to add. <laughs> Dis- dissent in the Nolan Stan camp. <laughs> no, uh, I, I do. I do stand. I think. I think Cotillard's great. I think she actually might give the second best performance in the film. I think Tom Hardy maybe edges her out a, a little bit here, but it's a really strong performance. And one of the things that I I really like about it is that it feels like, like when you get to the end of the film and Cobb is talking about how, you know, you're as good as my, you know, as perfect and amazing as you are. Like my imagination can't realize all of your your imperfections and your flaws and things like that. And and this this cognition that I've created for you, this uh, the way I perceive you is just not the same as real life. And I think when you actually, maybe this is some like J-level prestige reading into things BS here, but like I think when you actually go back and, and, and rewatch it, I think you can see the differences in the performance of the mall in like the flashbacks and the mall that you get that's like the projection of Cobb. I think that you really do get a, a difference there. And again, maybe, maybe that's just me you know, perception bias reading into it. I don't know, but that's one of the things that I, I really love about this performance. And I think that, uh, you know, like we'll get into Ariadne in a second, but I think it's a really fascinating character. Cause we, I mean, look, we complain about fridging in movies all the time. This is like something like the, like, I don't know, like this like feels like the opposite of fridging where it's like this death has like paralyzed him. Like he can't do anything about it at all. And he's having to overcome the fact that, you know, he might be responsible for that. Maybe, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. That's, maybe for you to decide here and, and a moral, a moral judgment that you have to make, but he, uh, he has to deal with that. He has to overcome it and he's not able to for 95% of the film. And I think that is, you know, it drives the plot forward in that way, but not in a, I need to do something heroic kind of way. I, it's like, I need to wrestle with the fact that I made a choice and this was the consequence. And I think that ultimately ends up being a really compelling part of the story. And I think that Cotillard plays that in a really compelling way. Cool. So last bit, guys, I do want to give a little bit more airtime for Ken Watanabe, who, swear to God, I thought this was his first role in a Chris Nolan movie. I com- <laughs> only only, only on the rewatch did I realize that he was uh, the fake Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins. Batman Begins, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but guys, uh, Ken Watanabe, Killian Murphy, uh, both both people who, made, who featured prominently in Batman Begins. Guys, anything else you want to add to these characters or any other members of the supporting cast? Michael Caine makes a very brief appearance. Uh, anything else? Very brief. Yeah, I did want to shout that out. It made me very happy to see him. What's that, like four movies in a row now we've seen him in? Yeah. Going on so. five. It's uh, It was good. Um, 
did anyone else think it was bizarre that Robert Fisher doesn't recognize this head of, I guess, what's supposed to be one of his like major competitors in the industry when he's like working with Saito on level three? This is a very small thing to nitpick. But I, I don't yeah, think I it don't actually know. is one. I don't think it actually is one of his competitors in the industry. Actually, we can get in. We can get into like. I think it's actually way a little bit more complicated than that. But it's maybe un- needlessly confusing that uh, that element of it. Fair enough. I, all I will say is that I like that they didn't like villainize either side of this thing. Like, like you don't know. You don't really know whether Ken Watanabe is in the right or whether Killian Murphy is in the right. It's just like they are just human beings. And like, in fact, you know, Robert Fisher gets to have a little bit of an arc there in the end. And I think we kind of feel for him maybe at the end of the movie. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's a, a lot of layers to the performance or anything, but I mean, there, you know, there aren't necessarily supposed to be, but I did like that element, I guess of, um, you know, there's not like an overt because like, I think that that's pretty consistent with what heist movies are. I mean, I guess if you think about like Ocean's Eleven or something, you technically have a bad guy, but all the bad guys in Ocean's Eleven like in the Ocean series eventually become good guys, it seems like. So um, I think that the heist, heist movies are more about can they get it done, not can they defeat this invisible enemy? Well, in many ways, Maul is the is the antagonist of the film, right? Like that she's yeah, the one I, who's it, constantly thwarting their plans and... But for the reasons that I said, even I think that I think that even that is complicated uh, to consider her just a straight up villain. Sure. No, I I agree with that. And uh, Nolan can't. uh, I just want to mention it because this is like our first film that has known like, well, no, ostensibly noir elements to it. But Marion Cotillard has to sneak in as some sort of like noir femme fatale to like mess with their plans because Chris Nolan can't get away from noir, which is fine by me because he's really good at it. But anyway, moving on to the plot here, guys. There's several topics I do want to hit, uh, no particular order. If we want to just jump in and start talking about Ariadne, we can. But I figured that we'd start with the heist elements of the film, the like the action thriller part of the sci-fi action thriller uh, genre tag, if you will. Guys, <laughs> this is, maybe seems like a really basic question, but like, does it work as a heist movie? 100%. Yeah, I, I think it, it works really well. And again, I think... You know, part of what's, what has to slow it down in the first hour, again, is because, you know, we're, we're doing something completely unique. You know, you, you really have to spend all this time, like, laying the groundwork for it, right? Like, explaining the rules, like, what is a kick? What is an architect, et cetera? But, you know, once, once we really get into it, you know, you, you feel like, you know, the stakes are there. You know, the, the set pieces work. You know, you have the, the zero-gravity fight, the, you know, storming the military base. Like, it all, it, it, it just works, you know? Like, there, I feel like there's a a good amount of action while, you know, still like, you know, keeping in mind and throwing in the fact that, you know, we're, we're, you know, not just here to blow stuff up, you know, like they're not only like, does, you know, is Cobb dealing with his demons, but Fisher is having this like reconciling moment with his father at the end. And I, I think, you know, it, it, it doesn't like vilify anyone the way like action movies do, like you guys said earlier, but I think that it works in its favor. And I think that, you know, the stakes are like played appropriately. Yeah, I mean, I think it works, too. I, I do think that, again, I keep coming back to this, but I think that this is where maybe him not uh, instilling much humor into his films is a bit of a detriment here, because I think that, like, the whole, you know, assembling the team is something where you could have, you know, sort of some tongue-in-cheek fun. I mean, I think that is certainly a, a hallmark of the Oceans series. I mean, I just think of that as being sort of the pinnacle, at least the first film when it comes to, to heist movies. Um, and here it's kind of just like, yeah, we have the 
architect and like you know the, these sort of like vague um titles that we don't really know know much about or that aren't necessarily very sexy or exciting um because that's the way it has to be but i don't know i, I think that there's something a little more rudimentary about the formation of the team than there is in like um you know an oceans movie where it's like you're being introduced to all these quirky personalities and you have the hacker and the you know the forger and all of this stuff and i mean i, th I think that it's it's more fun in those movies but i mean i think it, it it does work as a heist movie there's you know those moments of tension where it's like oh man are they going to get away with it or not like there's there's like these sticking points where it's like it seems like they're done for what's going to happen now i mean then, then of course the answer is just go a layer deeper um but that i mean that is kind of i think one of the i mean and this i i don't want to think it's, i don't want to say it's egregious because again i think the originality trumps the flaws in certain places but i think that like the the rules are very flexible in this movie um yeah. it, it's it's very much like we're gonna do we're gonna come up with a rule that we need in order to get us from point a to point b i mean kind of like i complained about this a little bit in the prestige about the invention of the you know teleporting machine by tesla at the end of the movie it kind of just feels very a very like convenient way for um for J hugh jackman to end up being able to do the trick in the same way that that borden was able to um and i think there are some aspects of that here it's like they get to the first layer and they're like oh well i thought you couldn't die in a dream well actually you can die you can, like you can get you go to limbo and limbo you don't want to go there like you you know you're introducing that elements and then and then it's like oh well i thought you know if you if you go any deeper than two layers then the person's going to wake up right like it's too risky um you, it, but then it's like well we have to go deeper so we can we just got to be very careful in all this stuff I, I don't know there there are just various moments where it feels like what we have understood is the logic of the dream world is kind of upended for not a whole lot of reason other than because we have to move the plot forward, right? Because we have to go somewhere with this. We need to have this rule, which gets us there. And it's a, I mean, it's just, it's a fun ride in the end. Like you just have to surrender to it at some point, I think. And once you do that, I think it's perfectly fine. But if you do want to, you know, sit there and pick, pick it apart, I think that is um, an element that where, you know, particularly like, again, comparing it to Memento, I think Memento was very clear about here's what the rules of, um, you know, this condition is, here's how this movie is going to be structured and sticks to that structure for the whole time. There's not really a lot of deviation there. Whereas here, I think um, he's he's playing around a little bit, again, not to a huge detriment to the movie, but it, it, it needs to be said, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think one of the benefits that Memento has, and I, I don't even mean this in a, in a bad way, is that there's like, in terms of the actual devices being used to progress the plot and to characterize Leonard and other people in the film is that there is no imagination that goes into that whatsoever. There's nothing original or creative about anterior grade amnesia. It's like the law, like the rules for it are very defined. There's no transformation going on and everything that's constructed in this film that's in the dream world is made up. Like that's, that's just the reality of it. And I agree with you, Scott, that if you wanted to, you could sit down and you could pick apart lots of things like, like, why are they in zero G in layer two, but not in zero th in, in layer three? Like, why? Just like, why? Why are they now, not experiencing that? One thing that I Saito's injuries, right? It's like they get better, isn't it? Like he, he gets less injured as they go deeper. Well, I don't he, think they he, really he explain why that. Less pain. He experiences less pain as they go deeper. Yeah, but why? <laughs> 
Because it ain't their dream. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's just like it's just presented because yeah. And but, I mean, again, it's it's fine. I don't want to make a bigger deal about it than it is because sure. I don't think I don't think for me like I think the Prestige was a movie that for me at least for me at least I, and I don't want to relitigate that, but a lot hinged on you know you you believing in um, the logic of everything um, and. I don't think that that's necessarily true of Inception. Like, I think because it is just so the concept of it is so out there, you're just kind of like, sure, why not? Of course, he can. He gets better. Like, nothing else in this world makes any sense. Like, why? Why wouldn't he get better? Like, why would? Why wouldn't there be this limbo? Like, you just, you just, you surrender to it. Like I said. Yeah, and two things about that is that, like, one, it's like one of the crazy things, and you can read as far into this as you want to, probably, is that like there have been like dream scientists that come out and talk about how accurate like Nolan's portrayal of dreams are to like our understanding of what dreams are like. And so, yes, there is some, there is certainly some creative liberties taken with, with what happens in dreams, but the fact that he also is maintaining and, and some consistency around like at least what dreams are like is pretty cool. I think. And then the second element is like to, to your point around, this is just like, so imagined out there. You just kind of have to like surrender at some point to it. Like I, I meant to say this earlier on, but like, the concept of this film, like dream heist, it honestly, it sounds like something that like Claire Denis would be making, right? Like just some like some psycho like like high like high concept genre filmmaker would be making, and yet Chris Nolan's over here making it with one hundred and sixty million dollars, and and Claire Denis is making High Life with like two million dollar budget, and looks like a curtain in the background for space <laughs> for, for space stars and stuff like that. But I, I think again, just to speak to how cool it is that Chris Nolan is trusted with something just out there crazy like like inception jay what do you think overall about this whole you I mean you talked about how it works as a heist movie but but any any thoughts on what scott was saying here yeah i mean i i don't think to nitpick the rules of the the dream world i guess too much uh, i agree there you know you kind of do have to just throw your hands up and say okay i guess this is how it works because you know nolan wrote it this way and thus that's how it has to be yeah. um and, and i think you know in some ways it does kind of serve to like in the case, I guess, of, you know, like, oh, you can't die in dreams. Just kidding. You can. Like in that case, it does serve to try to like ante up the stakes, even if it does feel somewhat artificial. Um, you know, if I had to actually like, I don't know, I don't want to like spend you know my time like nitpicking things. But certainly like Maul's death is actually the one part of the movie that makes zero sense to me. The fact that, you know, he that Cobb's character would be like framed for that when things like, I don't know, forensic science could prove that she was like on the in like the opposite building when she like jumped out because of like fingerprinting and other things i don't know like the fact that he's on the run because he's so sure he's going to be blamed for her death is actually like the one thing that doesn't make a ton of sense to me um and then maybe totems a little bit but we don't have to get into that too much i don't know if you guys have thoughts on the former yeah i think that i think it's a little bit hand wavy but she left a trail of evidence and they're like i i get the whole point you're saying around like how they can't figure out that she jumped from one window rather than the other but i think like the leap of logic that you take there is that like she set up a scenario that looks like they had an altercation she fell out of one or the other window to her death and she had openly talked to someone or the police or whatever it was about Three psychiatrists uh, which is a totally normal thing to do though right like that to, <laughs> that to me that raises more suspicion than answers questions but well sure I, well I, either I, way she's still dead and i think that it makes sense i think 
look, there's definitely some some leap of faith going going on there for sure. Like like she's Don't asking him to make a leap of faith. Uh, but I, I I think overall, again, I, I don't think anything with Maul's background bothered me too much. Totems, I hear what you're saying around. Maybe I think I kind of group it in with the rules of of the dream world that it's all all a little bit hand wavy there, too. And you just kind of take their word for it. And I think to kind of transition here to talk more about and I think we can get into Ariadne here in that like one of the reasons why early on the whole exposition I think actually works for this it works for me for this film is that you like the the audience is Ariadne in this movie like she is supposed to be the vessel for the viewer like you are supposed to see and think everything that she is seeing and thinking it's not perfect that way because the film's not shot from her perspective she's not in every scene she's in a lot of them but she's not in every scene but Ultimately, like she is the voice of the viewer. Like, why haven't you told everyone else that you have your wife locked up in in a dreamscape and like deep inside the recesses of your mind? Like, I need to do this because if I don't do this, like you're risking everyone's life. Like she like explain to me what like inception is. Explain to me like what the dream world, like what shared dream is. Like you, you get all that exposition and you as the viewer are getting that at the same time that Ariadne is getting that. So from that perspective, I think it, it like kind of pushes the plot forward and it doesn't make the exposition dull, but I can totally see why, you know, you've watched this film five or six times. You're like, I don't need to be explained what the dream world is for the fifth or sixth time. But I think if you put yourself into the shoes of, of Ariadne, I think that that's what kind of chugs the machine along there early on Scott. But with that thought, I want to go ahead and send it over to you and, and let you harp on anything here that you have that your thoughts on Ellen page's performance or her care the character of Ariadne, wherever your sort of thoughts lie, because I know I promised you that we'd get to it. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying there, Scott. I think you're right that this character is the audience surrogate, that this movie needs an audience surrogate because yeah. there is such a steep learning curve for just how the world works. And I don't think that the way that they do the exposition is really that clunky or that they spend too much time on. I mean, you know, the one line that I think is a little like, okay, is when she's like, wait, so whose subconscious are we going into now when they're in like the hotel or whatever? It's just like, okay, come on, we get it. Um, but I, my problem is that they use this character, right? Like they use the one female member of the team as the person who is the one who is always confused and doesn't really know what's going on. And like in a vacuum, okay, it would probably be fine. But now that we've watched several of these movies in a row, we have commented in all of them, or at least I have on, I think the deficiencies of some of the female characters, it starts to become a trend. And I think this is, this is another example. Why is she the tool here? Why is she the, the person who, um, you know, they, they need her, but like, she doesn't really seem to be understanding to understand what's going on um, in the dream world and really doesn't have like a super big contribution like when they get inside the the dream world because like other people are the ones who are trusted to to set up the kick right i guess she does shoot mal at the end but then that that makes them go to limbo and she just kind of goes along with with cobb and is just kind of the sidekick while they're they're going through limbo there and so i don't know it just feels like again he doesn't really know what to do with his female characters and it's okay to have the audience surrogate there. I think it's necessary to have the audience surrogate, but just having the, again, the one female character who is a member of the team, having her be the audience surrogate did rub me the, the wrong way a little bit, because I think she is in many ways, the one who is a little frazzled running around, like what's going on um, most of the time. Jay, any thoughts in response to that? 
Uh, I'm not here to dissent that point. Certainly, you know, uh, Scott Harvey, I think you're right. You know, in a vacuum, it's probably not the biggest deal. But, you know, given how we've seen it, you know, play out movie after movie, uh, I think your criticism is totally, criticism is totally fair. Um, and again, maybe, you know, part of the reason I'll just speak to my own experience, you know, why she is somewhat forgettable, perhaps is again, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, I have sort of the, the expository, expositional dialogue fatigue, right? Because I've seen this movie and I know the rules and, you know, there are parts of it that are like, you know, cool to revisit. You know, there's the scene where uh, she and Cobb are like sharing a dream, I think for the first time, uh, you know, sitting like on the, a street corner and then, you know, everything starts to just go kaboom, like all the, you know, side shops and whatever. Um, but again, like that, that, that's not even really her, you know, that that's more just what's going on. And ultimately, yeah, like, you know, she does, I think, yeah, because she's, you know, just playing the role of this like audience vessel and, you know, ultimately does get kind of, you know, annoying, you know, even just to use the line that you mentioned, you know, like whose subconscious are we going into again? Like, you know, it, it it does her a disservice and ultimately like makes her a forgettable character to me. And, and I do want to, yeah. And I, I want to add to a small moment that kind of peeves me, peeves me a little bit on the same point as right when she, when they're in the, I guess when they're in the dream, I don't remember exactly what they're doing, but it's her and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? When he kisses her yep. to like yeah, detract yeah. from, to like, you know, yeah. stop people from looking at them or whatever. That was a weird moment. It's like, it's so strange because it's like, it, that's not set up at all. It's just, I mean, it feels like Nolan is like, well, we have a male character and a female character. What are we going to do? We're going to make them kiss. Like he's like a kid playing with GI Joe and Barbie dolls or something. And like, he just like makes, makes them kiss because he thinks that's what males and females do. I don't know when they're uh, t together for more than, you know, a week or something, but that <laughs> was, that was a weird moment. And I think it's just, it's a small, it's a small passing moment, but I think it's indicative maybe of, again, with a larger trend of Nolan not knowing what to do with his female characters. Like he doesn't, he can't decide whether he wants there to be a romance or not. He just has like this fleeting moment. I think he decides that there isn't a romance, but uh, yeah, I, I will yeah, definitely. Why I have this moment. <laughs> well, yeah, I am I'm about to say that too. I, I agree that that moment was struck me as weird. I don't feel as, as weirdly about, Ellen Page's Ariadne, I think, as as you guys do, I think that because yes, yeah, so the audience surrogate stuff got that aside. Where it seems like we're all relatively on the same page with that. I I guess for me, it all and and I think that this is this speaks to a less of a microscopic issue with this character and more of a macroscopic issue with Nolan and female characters. To your point, maybe, but like I don't. I really think that if you put like he wrote this film in 2002 and if you make this film after after Memento and this is his third film, no one talks about this probably. I mean, for the most part, I think no one really talks about this as an issue. But because of everything that comes before him, I think that the fact that you have this female character who is like the new person in the group and isn't familiar, like all those things that you like, you can understand why she isn't as sharp with what's going on in the dream world because she is new. Like she's a total novice. She's not even supposed to be in the dreams with them. She's not even supposed to go under further past the first level. Like she's just riding along with them because someone has to keep Cobb in check because of Maul, right? Like that's, that's the whole notion that she's on. So like just in terms of like plot function, you can understand why she is this person who's a little bit maybe behind the learning curve of the team of the dream world, which, which is why I don't have a, again, a microscopic issue with this, with the thing. But the fact that this is the character you chose to wrote and you chose to not include any other type 
of female character on the team. There's Maul, right? But on the team, I think that is like the larger issue maybe that we're facing with Nolan because I think this individual character I don't find too much wrong with. I, I agree. The Arthur scene's a little bit weird there. And I mean, again, it's totally throwaway, which makes you wonder why it's even there. But overall, because it's like this character, you know, after we've gotten, you know, Maggie Gyllenhaal and Katie Holmes in, in the Batman movies after both of the women, well, I guess particularly maybe um, Rebecca Hall's character in The Prestige, like after the whole lineage of these weird female characters that we're getting, then you get someone like Ariadne and you're like, well, it's, it's interesting that this is this is the female character you chose to write in, in the film, not because there's anything wrong with this female character, but but this is the representation that you put into your film. And I think that like that's overall like the kind of the question mark I put around it less than the individual character, the individual performance. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. I think kind of two last topics that I think will kind of just fuse into one conversation. And that is Cobb and Maul. I think we kind of put it off a little bit. We talked about a little bit with the action piece and the heist uh, elements of, of the film. And Jay, you kind of gave your thoughts on on Maul's death and things like that. But I want to talk about Cobb and Maul. And then I, I do want to just kind of work this into the finale of the film, uh, both in their confrontation in Limbo, but also you know the, the real end of the movie before the credits roll. Uh, Scott, what do you think about Cobb and Maul? Like, is this, I mean, I've, I, we talked a little bit about this earlier when we were talking about DiCaprio and, uh, this whole character of Cobb, but like the movie, again, I'll say it again. Like the movie feels like to me that it hinges on this, on this kind of dynamic, this, this relationship. And do you feel the same? Does it deliver on that? What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it works for, for many of the reasons that I've said, I think you believe the emotion of the characters. I think that, you believe that they they could like that that someone could lose themselves you know in whether this is a dream or reality right because ultimately Cobb is kind of experiencing what what Maul was experiencing right like she she did she didn't know whether she was in a dream or reality and it cost her her life even even when people were telling her even when Cobb was telling her you know this is you're in reality um, she, she couldn't understand and. I mean, I guess I would just go back to that memento comparison. I think of um, this is this is Cobb. I mean, the the arc of the movie is about Cobb um, coming to terms with his wife's death, and and as part of that, sort of lifting this delusion that he has created for himself that that Maul is still there, like that he can bring her back or whatever he he thinks he can do to or that he can still be with her. Maybe, maybe that's what he believes Um, in the same way, right. That um, Leonard has sort of invented this quest of, Hey, I can get justice for my wife's death if I kill John G. But then we, you know, we find out that he, the whole thing is an invention. He's just stuck in an endless loop of killing people named John G um, just so that he has some sort of purpose. And, and that's, that's the same thing for, for Cobb, he seems to not really at the beginning of the movie. He doesn't even seem to really enjoy his work that much anymore um, until you know he gets this sort of unique offer to to do this Inception. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, it's ultimately about reconciling his his guilt with uh, what happened to Maul because um, he feels like he is responsible. And in the same way, Leonard. You know, he may not ever realize it, or if he does, he forgets it a few minutes later. Um, but, you know, there's a strong implication in Memento that he is the one who may have killed his wife. Um, and, you know, we, we just don't know. So I, I like the the parallels there between the two movies there. 
you know, there shows a, a thematic thread, but at the same time, there's obviously a lot very different with um, what is going on in Inception, what is going on in Memento, for for obvious reasons because the worlds are so different. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, it it worked for me. Jamie, the thoughts you want to add to what you were saying earlier? Not a ton, uh, you know, until we tie it into the finale. But you know, I, I think just to summarize, uh, at least you know what I, what I think you've been saying. Uh, and certainly how I feel, you know, this story very much is about Cobb, you know, and, and maybe that's why it's, at least in my book, like, okay, you know, that perhaps some of the other characters just aren't as like, well, flushed out and memorable. And, you know, again, like there are a lot of like rules and regulations you kind of just have to accept. I think this dynamic and this very real, you know, thing, issue, I guess, if, you know, a man has lost his wife and is struggling to cope with it. You know, this is a guy who, you know, we see about an hour into the movie you know, is hanging out in the dream world with her, you know, when uh, Ariadne ends up like following him in and like catches him reliving moments or whatnot. And, you know, it like their relationship essentially is what I think most easily allows us to like relate to what's going on. Um, and, you know, again, we'll really drive home uh, or at least, you know, force you to think about some of the you know greater themes that I'm sure we're about to touch on. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, I was just going to say, I think that's a good point. It, it grounds you in reality because it's a recognizable type of relationship um, that, you know, that we've seen before. So it, it grounds you in some sort of reality when the rest of the movie is begging you to get immersed in this dream world. It, you know, in the, in the same way that Cobb maybe is, is losing sight of um, what what is dream and what is uh, you know reality i think that that rela- that central relationship between Cobb and Maul is sort of what is anchoring us to what reality is because it's something recognizable in a movie that is often unrecognizable yeah and i think tying back to what you're seeing in in Yusuf's lab and and sort of dream like i don't know dream doctor's office i mean where the people come to to voluntarily sign up to to go into these dreams because it's the only way they can dream right Cobb is afraid that when his you know when he lets her go like yes she's dead in, in the real world in air quotes there like yes she's gone from there but she's not gone until he stops dreaming about her until he gives her up and lets her go no one's ever his, really gone well now let's put Leo in, into the Star Wars movies and see what happens next I'm, I'm down for it um, but I think yeah I think that it's one of those hard things where he because he feels responsible and for so many other reasons too that you know this relationship that exists he doesn't like he can't let her go right he can't let her go because if he gives up on her that means they will never be together again and he's questioning like the question that he's battling is that like is the the cognition version of of maul is, is the um you know is that version of maul as maybe imperfect as it is compared to her is that is that a version that still counts for being real and that he's able to be with? And I think that ties in to the question. I think that ties in really nicely to the question of whether like at the end of the film, very final scene, right before the credits roll, you know, he walks in, you know, he, he, the mission is successful, right? He manages to come to terms with his relationship with Maul. He lets her go in limbo. He kind of puts, puts the past behind him in that way. He comes out, of the dream the mission successful you know he retrieves saito or whatever he makes it through customs in the u.s he goes to his home and he sees his kids he spins the top on the table as you know something that he's been doing throughout the film 
as he questions sort of whether he's in the dream or in the reality or in a reality. But we don't get to see whether the top stops spinning and not. And I think more important than that and tying it back into the whole thing around, you know, does it matter whether someone is dream or reality? One thing that I think that's so interesting question is that he gives up mall. He he decides, you know what? We can't live like I, I can't let you continue to live like this as just a fragment of the person that you were. I'm going to let you go. The movie asks, like, is it real or is it a dream when he's, you know, back home, sees his kids. But more importantly, he doesn't seem to care whether it's real or a dream. He doesn't stay to watch whether or not the top stops spinning. He decides that whether it's dream or whether it's reality, it doesn't matter because he's back with his kids. And I find that a really interesting juxtaposition and an interesting piece of character development to someone who just spent two and a half hours of a film trying to come to terms with the fact that it does matter whether Maul is a dream or whether Maul is a reality. And I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on, and, and this is what I was alluding to earlier, just as I, as the more I watch this film, the more I think the question, the more I think the fact that he doesn't stay to watch the top is more important than whether the top stops spinning. And I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on that. Scott, we'll go to you first. I mean, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. I think the the point, the reason that it's not revealed, right, is because it doesn't matter. It's the again, going back to the train, it doesn't matter as long as you're together. And I think he just has to understand what it means like to be together, right? Over over the course of the movie. I think that's a lot about uh what his evolution is. But he he has to once he has put Maul aside, like that is necessary because um at that point, I think is where he he doesn't have necessarily have a problem anymore dissociating reality and and dream. Like once once he puts Maul behind him, like he he once again I think can firmly distinguish between what is dream and what is reality. Or at least that's what we're supposed to understand because then that's what makes the ending fine, right? That's that's what makes it like okay whether it is a dream or reality because at the end of the day we still know that Cobb is going to be able to find his way back because Maul is out of his life now this this person that was you know holding him back from um you know living a fulfilling life maybe um is now out of his life like he, he has put that trauma behind him finally which i think is is maybe the more practical application of of what he's doing here um and yeah, like I, I think like it doesn't matter, but I mean, I think it's it's reality because you know his children, we don't see their faces at any time except um, at, at the end of the movie, and so um, I, I don't know. But again, I, I, I I'm on the same page as you, Scott. That I don't think it matters because what matters is he has you know completed his emotional journey to where he doesn't have to live in the past anymore. He has put finally put the past behind him and he can focus on the present, which is his children, right? Who are still alive, who still need to be cared for and not be, you know, trapped in this, you know, limbo again, so to speak, um, by someone who it is, is actually dead. Jay, what do you think? You've had a lot of time to mull over what I said. Yeah, it's tough, you know, because, I think, you know, his final scenes with Maul or his final scene with Maul, right, is very much spent, you know, affirming the fact that, you know, like you can't live in your dreams. You can't like live, you know, or I guess in the past, I guess is more what he is more what it's about. Right. Because if it is about, you know, 
staying in reality, then like it, it really should matter to him, you know, whether or not the top falls over or not. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's tough to like, to think of it as, you know, like, okay, like all he really had to do was like, let go of Maul. And then, you know, it didn't really matter whether it was a dream or real for me, because, you know, you spend all that time, you know, th- you know, he says things like, you know, like, you're just a shade and yada, yada. And like, wouldn't that be true of like projections of his kids? And he wouldn't really be with them. And ultimately, like, does the train metaphor even work if you're not really with the people that you're, you know, that you, you're going anywhere with? Right. And so, you know, like in, in my mind, like I reconcile this by just saying, you know, like he, he sees his kids and whatever, but then he like, he does eventually come back inside and he doesn't look for the top to like make a thousand percent sure. Right. Because. Well, now you're like, just adding to the story. No, I know. And like, and I know that's not like whatever, but to me, like I, I really can't reconcile the ending. If it was so important to him to get back to his kids that he ultimately decides it doesn't matter, especially because like 10 minutes before he was talking to Maul about, you know, you know, how like it, it mattered that she wasn't really his wife. And, you know, again, in an hour into the movie, he's okay with, you know, spending his dreams, you know, going to see her and spend time with her and reliving these like key moments from their life. You know, that, that, that person just isn't there anymore by the end, you know, at least I'm, I'm meant to believe. Right. And so it, in my mind, like it does matter if he made it back or not. I, I think he did. Um, but yeah, to me, like, you know, the whole, the notion that, you know, it's okay if he didn't make it back because he doesn't care. Like, I have a really hard time, you know, with that juxtaposition with, you know, again, what we see 10 minutes before. Again, I didn't maybe- say he didn't care. I didn't say he didn't make it. I'm saying that he's choosing that. It, ultimately, what's most important to him is seeing his kids again, not whether or not he's in a dream or in a reality. But doesn't it matter whether or not they're actually his kids? Like, I thought that was kind of what. But what's real? But like, what's real, Jay? Is it, is. Sorry, there Scott, is a, oh my god see like <laughs> well, i'm just gonna say like i don't think i think maybe we're trying to treat it like it's a happy ending and everyone is satisfied i don't i don't think that that is the case i mean i think there is a melancholy note to it right because i mean just like memento right very dark ending like because if you know if he is actually in a dream right then that means that his time with his kids right are is kind of his time lost, right? Like maybe the time that he never actually got to spend with his kids because he was too busy mired in this thing with Maul. So there is like that that aspect again of may, maybe he's still deluding himself into thinking that he can uh, like right past wrongs or whatever that he can he can prove the mother-in-law wrong or whatever and that he actually can uh, provide for his kids when maybe it's too late, right? Maybe this is just a dream maybe he can only dream uh, that he was you know the father that his kids needed uh, maybe it's not actually reality maybe i don't i don't know again i i have a hard time with it uh you know I, it, i'm just it, saying like you're totally welcome to think that jay but if chris nolan wanted you to see him watching the top fall he would have shown it in the film of and- course and it was it's a brilliant ending don't get me wrong like i think it's awesome like you know like the first time uh, i'll never forget the first time when it went to black you know as you the top wobbles for like a split second and then it goes to black and i was just like you brilliant person you know person is not the word i used like you brilliant person you you brilliant man sure that's the word you used um you know it uh it, it's a great ending and i think i think it you know again works to you know i guess like serve the type of film that like Nolan wants to put out in front of us. I don't, I don't think it'd be very Nolan-esque at all if the top had fallen over. And at that moment, his kids like, you know, turn and face him and then he runs into their arms. Like, you know, like that's not a Nolan film at all. I feel like. So, 
you know, I, I, I recognize the movie had to end that way, but I have, I've made up my own mind about, you know, like he, he had to have made it back. Otherwise, like, what was the point? And maybe that's just me wanting a happy ending, but I'm, I'm willing to, you know, die with that. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that you're adding on a little bit more to the story uh, to, uh, to make yourself, to make yourself live with it. But that's part of inception. Maybe. I don't know. Does it really matter what's real? <laughs> Whether I added it on myself. Are we in a dream right now? Oh boy. <laughs> We've gone off the deep end. All right, guys. <laughs> With that, why don't we wrap up here? Jay, what was your favorite scene or moment from Inception? It was the ending. Um, and, After and, all and, that, no, and I know it was so and good I, that you I, had to I'll, add I'll more to it why. to make no, it. No, and, uh, I'm, and I'm going to tell you why. It's it's literally just because of time. The song that's playing at the end there. I, I think it, it. It. I I won't go as far to say favorite. It's one of my three favorite like songs in a movie, like or songs written for a movie, like ever. Um, it. It, yeah, it works. It just works with me uh, or for me, you know, really well. Like I, I very much feel like the, like the emotional highs and lows and the stress of like, you know, when Cobb is looking at Saito, like you better be making this call right now. And then again, you know, when he's walking through the airport and you know, there's this sense of like, maybe just maybe like, is this real? Have I made it? And again, you know, maybe by the very end when he spins the top, he doesn't care so much about that. But to me, like, you know, time, that song again, just, just beautifully brings it home. Scott, what about you? Yeah, I don't know. There's there's so many moments, right, that um, that stand out because the whole thing does seem like such a fever dream. I guess I'm going to go with the zero G fight. We di we didn't talk about it that much, but in the in the yeah. hotel um, hallway is just like revolutionary almost fights. I mean, it, it's it is Matrix esque, I guess you would say. The yeah, I was I was going to say it's not quite revolutionary, but it does remind yeah, you yeah. of a film from 1999. What? So. What goes on here between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and, and the the thug that he is fighting um, is is pretty uh pretty amazing to watch um, and yeah I don't know when we'll see another um, set piece like that who knows but it's it's a lot of fun to watch and you know was was mind blowing for the time and still holds up I think Scott I got some news for you I would imagine whenever we do watch Tenant I think you're gonna get something probably like that in that film um, not exactly the same obviously yeah. but. Yeah, all those bullets are going to be catching rather than shooting and tenants really going to, I think, really do it for you. Maybe so. Maybe he is uh, he is an old dog uh, and he can't learn new tricks, but I guess we'll see. I think I think he probably can. But No, I meant more just like innovative fighting, like innovative right, fights. Yeah. I think we're going to see stuff like that in Tenet. Not, not he's yeah. going to recreate the same fight scene again. Do another zero G fight, sure, yeah. I think Chris Nolan's probably very opposed to ever doing the same thing twice, to be honest. But, well... He uses I don't know. Stuff. We've seen he some parallels the same between tricks. the movies. He, yeah. he uses a lot of the same tricks, but I don't think he recreates scenes. Uh, anyway, yeah. so I, I think, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. That was the scene that I was going to say. So just to be different, I'm going to say, look, guys, the opening kind of sequence where Leonardo DiCaprio is going like full James Bond in the Japanese, uh, like, I don't even know, is that a monastery, castle, whatever you want to call it. I think that that is just really awesome. Maybe it isn't even Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't, I don't know. Scott, you, you've questioned my reality. Uh, <laughs> But I, I think that's awesome. It made me really wish that Leo had gotten the chance to to be a to be a spy, you know, beyond Inception, because he is a spy in Inception. That is, uh, he is I doing mean, corporate espionage. I only question it, right, because we had an entire movie last year about his Leonardo DiCaprio's relationship with his stuntman. I mean, yeah, that's fair. But look, I don't know if Leo does his own stunts. I mean, we know Tom Cruise does, but I don't know if Leo does. Um, that's why he's the goat. Yeah, maybe, maybe why he's that's why he's going to space. No one can stop him. Yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, yeah, I think that that's a that's a great scene, but I probably would have gone with that 
that Leo fights. I mean, look, guys, I, I've been pretty open about talking about how I, I don't actually know how innovative Nolan's uh, fight scenes were until the Dark Knight. But man, like between the Dark Knight and between Inception, man, he really uh, kicked kick that imagination into high gear. Yeah, uh, I don't know what got into him. It was probably the bigger budgets, but uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, he definitely took it to another level. Yeah, and with that, let's talk about scores. Jay, what weird score between 6.1 and 10.0 are you going to give Inception? 9.2. I, I hate that I always go first. Um, 9.2. This is a, this is it wouldn't make me film. feel any better if you went last, trust me. It's <laughs> fine. 9.2 is an excellent film. Uh, you know, I, I love so many of the Nolan films. This is one of them. Yeah. Scott, what about you? 8.9. It's really great. Um, I have some, you know, small problems, like I said, with characterization, uh, a little bit, I think a lot of the characters feel a bit samey, but, um, and, and, you know, and of course the, the natural logical flaws, which emerge, but it's hard to, uh, to dwell on those too much. I think that he irons over those very well with uh, an incredibly original and innovative package. So 8.9. 10 point for me guys. It's one of my favorite films of all time for a reason. There's definitely flaws, but as Scott Harvey likes to talk about all the time, how a movie can have flaws and it can still be, still be a masterpiece. And this one is for You're me. not wrong. Yep. Yep. All right, guys, that should do it for part seven of the Nolan countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at media plug pods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed as well as subscribed and shared so that you can so that we can reach a broader audience. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to part seven of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. Don't forget to check out all other uh, all the other podcasts in the Some Like It Scott feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It Scott, as well as Champs Lunch. And we'll be back next week with part eight of the Nolan Countdown, when the three of us will be revisiting the finale of Chris Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. I think are are much like Trump supporters. Like I think Zack Snyder could probably shoot someone in the street and they wouldn't really care. Ooh, okay, let's <laughs> go right, right down this time code. <laughs> edit that out of the podcast. Controversial. Yeah, you, 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 no, 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 no. X that out, please. Yeah, we'll edit that one out for for Leave the benefit of Scott Harvey. No, don't don't. <laughs> I'll put that at the. I'll put that as a ghost clip at the end of the episode after after the music rolls. Leave it in. <laughs> That's a wild take. Um, all right. It's not, though. Yeah. Okay. We'll all leave right, it at that. <laughs> and we'll move on. <laughs>